Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. I am writing to you, dear children, because of your sin, have, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know who, him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of, of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of the life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning, everyone. Such a joy to be with you. The chapel's kind of sparkling. I don't know if you noticed, there's a new paint job on the wall. New bank of lights, which was clearly designed by millennials because there are two lights on the drummer and none on the preacher. <laughs> um, it, I mean, there is a real buzz in the air, isn't there? It's uh, um, so exciting to be back. Uh, you can feel the, the enthusiasm, the keenness to learn and grow, to praise God, to uh, go to morning tea and lunch, to renew old friendships, meet new friends, in short, to eat, pray, love. Um, and with all the enthusiasm in the air, I'm going to start with a trigger warning. So I'm going to talk about something that will possibly um, ruin the atmosphere. It's a sensitive subject. It is this, essay marks. So, essay marks. Uh, but thankfully, don't fear, it's not your essay marks, which, are, which is coming. I want to comment upon the marks I would give the New Testament epistles. Okay, so just a few of them to give you a taste. So Romans, I would give 95. It's uh, uh, comprehensive, well-argued, sustained. It starts well, ends well. It's nothing extraneous. Uh, Galatians, I'd give 75. It's got solid work. Um, the Genesis 16, Sarah Hagar, things a bit confusing. It's, it's a bit preachy at points. So just mark it slightly down. Now, 1 John, which is a series I began in October last year, I'm sure you remember, um, has good content, no doubt, but it does need more structure and it's a bit repetitive, isn't it? Did you notice that when we did our reading? Um, it, indeed, the commentators actually get themselves in a bit of a twist when they try and analyse the uh, I'm writing to you bit. Uh, John addresses three groups, you will have noticed. Keep the verses open if you've got them there. Uh, he talks to children, to fathers and young men. So we ask ourselves, why, why is he not talking to the women? Um, why does he do it twice? Does he kind of forget what he first said? Uh, what about the descriptions he gives to each group? Fathers know him who was from the beginning twice. Children know the father once. Young men overcome the evil one twice. Are strong once. So I kind of want to say to John, at least before I started uh, getting into it a bit more, now, John, you really should have done some more planning in writing this. Uh, have you ever tried a mind map? Maybe you should visit one of our tutors. Or at least you could read it over and do some editing. 
Now, the truth, of course, it's not obvious really, but just to let you know, I think the truth is that to to mark John down is to misread John. This is not a familiar genre to us. And uh, what John is doing takes some thinking. It's really a genre mistake to think that uh, John is making a mess of what he's writing. It's like reading a train timetable and complaining that there are no illustrations. It's a different sort of literature. It's a highly structured, repetitive format, and it's almost poetic. And the way it's set out in the NIV Bible, especially verses 12 to 14, indicates that. Because in English, there's only one way to tell a poem these days, now that we have free verse, rhyme, rhythm, and those kind of things are out the door. The way to tell a poem is wide margins. And that's what you've got here. So 12 to 14 is like a poem. And John is, I I think probably he's referring specifically to fathers and young men. I'm not sure about that. Maybe we can think about that at morning tea. Uh, But certainly has all Christians in mind because he addresses children uh, a few times. And that's his normal address for children of God. So 3.1, 3.2, 3.10 in the following chapter, you can see that. So the children of God is his usual form of address when he's talking uh, to um, all God's people. The the whole letter is, in fact, quite repetitive, which which can be annoying, but only if you don't like poetry. Uh, You're meant to marinate in it, to kind of let it seep in as you read it and hear it repeated. It's a model, really, of Christian meditation. Dissecting the passage will kill it, and it'll be very painful for the passage and for you. Uh, We're meant to hear it as an evocative, affective text, one that makes you think hard and feel hard uh, what he's saying. As it turns out, 1 John 2, 12 to 14 picks up earlier themes in the letter. And if you've read from the beginning of 1 John, or if you can remember as far back as October, you'll know that. So for example, in verse 12, he says, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Well, back in chapter 1, verse 7, we have the cleansing blood of Jesus forgiving our sins. And then the famous verse in 1 John 1, 9, where God is faithful and just to forgive us, which is really what we're meant to feed into on account of his name. So it's a kind of cumulative thing as you go through 1 John. To hazard a musical analogy, and I got the advice of Andrew Judd, which I'll probably uh, mangle, but here we go. 1 John is not like leader by Schubert. Makes sense, doesn't it? Um, which has a continuous form, A, B, C, D, E, F. Yep, that's what he tells me anyway. The style of 1 John is more like a sonata, which has a complex structural development of themes, or believe it or not, like a country and western song, just to bring it closer to home to some of you. Um, A, A, B, A, B, C, B, B, D, A. So he keeps coming back, and one of the challenges of preaching 1 John is not to steal your own thunder by talking about all the themes when they first pop up. Or you could leave it several months in between sermons. (laughs) That's another way around that. So if Paul writes leader, by the way, is the German term for songs. It's a particular type of song. John writes sonatas or country and western songs. If Paul has Schubert and Brahms on his playlist, John prefers Mozart and Casey Chambers. Uh, You know the father. You are his children. God has forgiven your sins. God's word lives in you. 
You are strong and have overcome the evil one. Yep, now let's say it again. That's the kind of what's going on here. He wants to impress upon you these affirmations of our status before God. Maybe the musicians get it. I suspect the engineers are struggling. John takes a lingering gaze at his audience and uh, reminds them of who they are, what God's done for them. And uh, this is not just to cheer us up, though. That's the thing to notice. Uh, To what end does he do this in verses 12 to 14? I think there are two clues from the context. Context, what do you know? The first time the readers are children in 1 John is back in chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, he also tells us his purpose in writing. He says, I'm writing to you children so that you may not sin. So one of the things John has in mind when he writes 1 John, the letter, is to help us in the struggle against sin. If it's easy to misread 12 to 14 as aimless and redundant, the mistake reading 15 to 17 is to disconnect it from 12 to 14. Did you get that? So the following verses, 15 to 17, which are much more familiar and more likely to be bumper sticker verses or uh, uh, to bring it up to date, Instagram verses, whatever that is, um, is to read them in the light of 12 to 14. And then we see that at root, what John is doing is reminding the believers who they are, giving them an affirmation before he exhorts them. The exhortations on their own don't have much, much traction, but read in the light of the fact of what we've just affirmed, about ourselves in Christ as children of God and so on, there's a lot better chance for us to succeed. So with 12 to 14 in mind, John's point is clear in 15 to 17. Children of God are well positioned to resist worldly temptations. So John affirms us before exhorting us. For those studying Greek or Hebrew grammar, the imperatives flow from the indicatives. And this, by the way, is a much better strategy. It's a biblical strategy. Both Testaments do exactly this for moral transformation than simply giving people rules. John could have just said, watch out for lust, greed and pride. But he doesn't. He first of all builds us up in our faith, gives us confidence to combat these sins. So one of the benefits of doctrine, friends, is to bolster and strengthen us for the fight against sin. Why do we have such difficulty with temptation, it's because we don't know what position we're sitting in and standing in. We stand in grace before God. So we are God's children and our love for the Father in response to his love for us means that we cannot love the world. We are strong and have overcome the world and the evil one. And our sins have been forgiven on account of his name because God is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So John here, just to repeat myself, is giving encouragement before presenting the exhortations to overcome temptation. Then in verse 15, he gives us the exhortations, 15 to 17. He says, do not love the world, verse 15, or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Now, the word world has three different reference in John's hands. He could be talking about the creation the universe, yep, clearly he's not. He could be talking about the people of the world. God so loved, same word, the world, yep. 
Clearly he's not. We're, we are meant to love people. What he's talking about is the world as an evil, organised, earthly system controlled by the power of uh, the evil one, which has aligned itself against God and his kingdom. The values of worldliness, we might say. So we, we still have that term. Um, we used to anyway. Uh, we should revive it. I think worldliness is a good way of thinking about what, what he's talking about. He's not saying we should be ascetic. He's not a kind of uh, killjoy, a party pooper. He's not saying we can't enjoy a good meal. He's not anti-sex in the right context. There's, of course, there's a sealed section on, in the Old Testament about marital erotic love. Uh, nor does he mean that the created universe, whereby the physical world and flesh are bad and only God and spirit are good, is the way to go. That, that's that's a, a doctrine of Greek philosophy. And unfortunately, there was a bit of a turn in the early centuries away from the Jewish and Christian view of the goodness of the world. There's no real dualism in Christianity. It's not that flesh is bad and spirit is good. The creation is to be enjoyed with thanksgiving. After all, John opposes in his letter a false teaching that, deny that denies that Jesus came in the flesh. If you remember the opening verses, uh, you've got a beautiful description a very physical description of the word who became flesh, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. So true love for God the Father, he says, has a singular loyalty. We can't love the world and its values which are opposed to God, and at the same time love the Father. Another way in which he reinforces this is in verse 17. He says, The world and its desires will pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So the things he's talking about will not last forever, but they're certainly here and temptations to us now. Verse 16 mentions three characteristic sins of worldliness, of loving the world instead of loving the Father. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Um, we don't have time. The, the, the middle one's the tough one. So the lust of the flesh it has a usage which is clear. It's talking about sexual immorality, lust, yep. And pride of life has the word pride, so we're clear there. Um, the lust of the eyes, I think, is greed, and not just because I've written two books about greed. Um, I, I think what we've got here is a, is a reference to excessive grasping and hoarding of material things. That's what lust of the eyes is, what you see you want and you want to keep for yourself. So it's the opposite of the generous sharing of possessions and contentment. Uh, so the lust of the eyes, I think, is greed. So in short, lust, greed and pride are the very definition, according to John, of worldliness. And the fact that these are worldly vices, I think are, it's pretty clear from the way at least two of them are openly celebrated in our society, aren't they? You think about lust, just watch a music video. Um, that's, uh, these, mo most music videos feature and celebrate lust. Uh, try speaking against pornography in the media. You can't do that because you'll be seen as uh, not sex positive. On that score, it's kind of weird that our society, society is rightly concerned about the exploitation of women, 
but won't condemn pornography, which is so violent. So much pornography is violent. And uh, we have Fifty Shades of Grey, um, a best-selling book in the tens of millions, which is all about abusing a woman. Greed, the inordinate desire for more and more pointless hoarding of possessions, again, it's kind of celebrated in the media when a really successful person, uh, as they're seen to be, um, accumulates lots and lots of wealth. But like any false god, greed is a god that fails. No one sees a psychologist and said, I'd really like my help, uh, some help with my greed. It, it's just not thought of as a vice anymore, despite repeated examples of greed not being good. The consumer society depends on greed, economists recommend it, and politicians rely on it. Now, pride is less explicit, and partly because of the example and teaching of Jesus, who lowered himself to the point of death as a slave, our society now at least gives lip service to humility. We like our heroes to be modest, don't we? But the reality is below the surface, we've still got this, this follow your dream narrative, um, push everyone out of the way to excel and exceed the rest. And in Australian culture, we do like to put people down in a kind of jokey way. But when you put someone down, you're really lifting yourself up, aren't you? So pride is still, I think, something that uh, gives uh, um, credence to the idea of it being the very definition of worldliness. All three destroy relationships and lives every day of the week. On a grand scale, and I hesitate to say uh, to talk about this because it's such a, um, a delicate topic, but the, the terrible war that's happening in Ukraine. Yep. I read this morning 500,000 people have fled already and uh, um, there's untold suffering. We, we just don't really know what's going on in Ukraine. Why, why is this happening? It, it's simple. It's Vladimir Putin's greed and pride. It's just one man's greed for more territory and his pride at what he sees as the snubbing of the Soviet Union uh, when, the, uh, uh, late, uh, when the late 20th century revolutions happened and he lost so many of the uh, Soviet republics. Now, John, though, won't let us off the hook because the three sins are perennial sins. Um, I'm not much of a... Well, I'm not a musician at all, actually, and I'm, I'm barely a gardener, so my attempts at gardening are always about weeding and uh, mowing, although I've passed the mowing on to Toby at this point, uh, which is good news. Um, but in Scotland, where I lived for eight years, the weather's very different to here, and there was something in the garden that used to surprise me every year. It was the tulips and the daffodils popped out out of nowhere. Who thought it? It's amazing. They're called bulbs, apparently. And uh, these things just pop up without you realising, totally unexpected, at least to me, um, and uh, then you have to mow around them. That gets a bit annoying. But they're, uh, they're, they're things that come now and then. So there are a lot of sins like that that are a problem for some people at some points in life. So examples would be uh, things like anger, foul language, disobedience to parents, lying, malice, a divisive spirit. These, these, are, these are really bulb sins, whereas the three sins of lust, greed and pride are the perennials in the garden of sin. 
Have I got that right? A perennial's just always there. Yep. Yep. That's what it means. I hope so. And they're evergreens in the forest of temptation. They're not like deciduous trees that kind of blossom with leaves now and then and then die back. You know, they barely notice them. It looks like there's been a fire. Um, these things are always with us. Lust, greed, and pride. They're not temporary or fleeting. They're constant temptations. The corollary of verse 17a, uh, that they'll pass away one day, means that they haven't passed away yet. So if you haven't confessed lust, greed, or pride for a while, you're not paying attention because they're always with us. They're the kind of things that creep up on you. They're always going to be a difficulty. Now, you might think an older person doesn't have a problem with lust. A friend of mine put it this way. I won't make it too creepy for you. So, so basically, my friend said, I'm now in my 60s. This is what my friend said. He said, when I was in my 40s, I used to be attracted to women in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. Now I'm in my 60s, I'm attracted to women who are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. So the scope for his lust has actually increased over time. Um, the solution, though, is not to remove yourself from contact with the opposite sex or to those you whom with whom you might be attracted. It's very interesting. In 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, it says to treat the younger women as sisters. And then uh, for those who don't get metaphors, he adds, with absolute purity. Yep. So the church is a model of multi-generational co-ed setting. Yep. It, it's, we are meant to relate to each other and to all sorts of people. It's one of the great joys of church. Yep. So in, a, in, in this kind of setting, we are, the, the older men are to relate to the younger women, but as sisters with absolute purity. And uh, the realism of the Bible, I, I, I never get over, and its emotional intelligence, the fact that it sees that as a potential problem. Now, of course, women have problem with, problems with lust, greed, and pride as well, but I do think maybe, and I'm happy to be corrected, this is a kind of maybe moment, that the fact that he targets in 12 to 14 fathers and younger men, that they're a particular temptation for the younger men. And maybe in that context, that's what was going on. It's difficult to know. Uh, greed runs unchecked when we're not generous or content. Uh, I talked about this a little earlier. And, and greed is such a folly, friends. You, it, some, the psychologists understand this. It's called habituation. If you get a brand new car... It gives you a buzz, yep. A month or two later, it's just your car. You get habituated to it. You're going to have to drive around in something if you're lucky to own something. It's just going to be your car. So I used to have a, a big screen computer and because and, and, I did a lot of editing back when I was in Sydney and uh, I was so excited about it. It had this little button you could push for movie trailers and even JWs who came to the door, I'd bring them in and show them. <laughs> it's just my computer, yep. It's just my sofa. So in the end, you just uh, um, get habituated. So the problem with greed is that it's a misdirected religious impulse. So we look to material things, and this is relevant to our passage, which are a replacement for the love of God. Loving the world is looking to material things for the kind of security and satisfaction that each of us as human beings crave, but only God can deliver. Greed is a God that fails. Pride, too, uh, the desire to be well thought of, to excel, to be famous is also constant. 
Pride is a, a sin of comparison. And the bad news is about being at Ridley College is we run on comparison. Yep, we, we put you on a bell curve. We're always assessing you. You can basically ask friends if you're bold enough or proud enough or envious enough uh, what they got on, on their mark. Yep. And so we're constantly comparing you. But the challenge with love is not to compare yourself with someone, but to be for someone. And, and pride is a particular, um, uh, in, a particularly insidious thing for a Christian worker. I mean, it's just so ridiculous, isn't it, that we're saved by grace and then we try and outdo our uh, peers. The message of 1 John 2, 12 to 17 is this. As children of God, we are well positioned to resist worldly temptations. You are those who are forgiven. You know God, our Father. You have overcome the evil one. You are strong and the word of God lives in you. You have a firm place from which to resist the lust, greed and pride, which are so characteristic of a world opposed to God that is destined for judgment. These things are excessive loves of things that don't repay our affections. Only love for the Father endures and leads to eternal life. Brothers and sisters, we are in a war of survival, but John tells us we are strong and battle ready. We have overcome the evil one. We will lose some battles, but forgiveness is available from our God. The good news is that whoever does the will of God lives forever.